So Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Matt. Welcome home, Patty. I know you probably don't call this home anymore, but welcome back. I'm going to stop and pray in just a second, but first I want to welcome you. Welcome to Grace Life. I trust that uh, we're going to find today just worshiping the risen Christ, that he is worth getting out of bed on a cold, wet, dark morning. I'm not. Maybe you're not. But he is. He's worthy of us gathering together because something powerful and miraculous and supernatural and important happens when God's people gather together. Something happens that's, uh, that, that doesn't happen out there when we're just by ourselves. So, so collectively, God's spirit, God's presence is with us and just pray for him to meet with us today and, and change our hearts, fill our hearts with hope, give us a glimpse of glory and Meet us where we're at. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what we are doing is so important today, and the topic that we're talking about is such a, seems to be, to me, a confusing thing to even many seasoned Christians. And, and so it feels heavy today, what I'm talking about, Lord, because it's so, it is weighty. And I know that we, we wake up every morning, Lord, and we, we are breathing the cultural air that's all around us, and we don't even realize it. It's like a fish swimming in water. We don't even think about it, and there are a gazillion ways each and every day that this world is seeking to mold us and shape us and press us into the image of someone other than Christ. That happens all the time, 24-7, 365 days a year, and we come in here for just a couple of hours, or maybe one, maybe one hour, Lord, every, every Sunday, and I feel the weightiness of, of what we're seeking to do together, and it would be pointless without your help, Lord. These will just be words thrown out in the air or, or me reading ink on paper um, without your spirit coming and helping us, Lord. Help us to, to just marinate in your truth today. I know your spirit uses the truth. Sanctify us in accordance with your word, Lord, and may your spirit do the sanctifying work that's required. And I pray that we would leave here helped and, and challenged and comforted and change and maybe convicted, Lord, in the right way. Only you can meet a group of people this size where they all are and give them exactly what they need, Lord. I can't, but you can, and I trust that you will. As we heard already, your word never returns void. You accomplish a purpose for which you send it, Lord, and we pray you will do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll keep your Bibles open if you have one to Romans 12, and if you don't, that's okay. We'll bail you out. We'll, uh, we'll put some scriptures up on the board here. Have you ever heard this phrase, I just want to know or I just want to find God's will for my life? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that or thought that? I certainly have many times, and I've heard it as a pastor and as a Christian for many people, many of them dear friends of mine. I just want to know what God's will is. What do we mean when we say that? Or what do we mean when we think that? I think sometimes we mean we want to please God, which is a good thing. That's a good thing. You want to please God, you care about what he cares about. Other times, I think it means we don't want to miss out. We don't want to miss out on something important and weighty that God has for us. It's waiting for us. It's there. God's prepared it. But it's our responsibility to see it or to find it. Uh, or to somehow connect with it. And that can be paralyzing. That can be terrifying, paralyzing. It can make you uh, preoccupied with the future in a way that's unhealthy. It can make you miss opportunities right here, right now in the present that God is more concerned about. It can make you uh, lose just the responsibility that God's put in front of you. It can make you neurotic and paranoid. I've met people that are like that. They think somehow... That when you mention the will of God, there's, there's some kind of a silver bullet. It, it, they think of it like a bullseye. 
It's something that, man, you're, the, the weight of the world is on your shoulders to go to the right college, marry the right person, engage, uh, declare the right major, move in the right neighborhood, buy the right car. And we also think, because we get mixed signals, that if we've found that bullseye, that somehow if I marry the right person, then I'm never going to have trouble in our marriage. And then, you know, during the honeymoon, probably, what happens? You argue and you think, well, I must have missed it, man. I must have missed it. God had this silver bullet thing for me, and I missed it. I didn't pray hard enough. I didn't consult the right people. I didn't think about it right. I didn't get that quiver in my liver. You know, I didn't read the turtle cracks on the shell. Or if we buy the right car, the check engine light's never going to come on, right? (laughs) Or, I mean, fill in the blank. If you go to the right college or send your kids to the right college, then they're going to get a career that's meaningful and that's purposeful, that they enjoy, that they derive satisfaction from. And so we live sometimes a large measure of our Christian lives with regret or maybe bitterness or anger at God or people who gave us bad counsel or at ourselves for just missing it, not having the wherewithal, not having the discernment to discern, to, to ascertain, to, to find out what God's will is. So that's why this sermon matters. What the Apostle Paul is telling us matters. I want to help you with anxiety, with fear, with regret, with bitterness. Bad theology can be cruel and it can also be crippling. So that's why I wanted to talk about this. Not just because it's the next thing in Romans. And it's interesting, not a lot of people, the, the, you know, some of the commentaries that I read and the, and the things that I study... A lot of people skip past this, and it's not, they're not wrong to do that. I just feel like it's 2024. There's a lot going on. Talking to some of you, I wanted to just camp out here for one sermon. And you can pray for me. Even as we preach, you can pray for me that I would say exactly what God wants you to hear today. This is a, God's will is a very broad subject. It's, it's a sermon series, really. There's a ton of books you can find on the Christian bookstore, and they all say different things. And I want to I do this in one sermon. I don't want to prolong it for another week. I want it to be... Just a one and done, and then if we have questions, you can talk about it in your community groups or put some notes up for you. Um, so here's my outline, okay? God's will for my life. Three things I really want us to take away today, and I'm going to explain these. These are probably all going to be controversial, okay? And hopefully a helpful way, a thought-provoking way. Number one, don't sweat the big stuff. Don't sweat. That's, already that sounds nuts, doesn't it? I'm going to explain don't sweat the big stuff. Number two, renew, renew, renew. And number three, live the good life. Live the good life. So what do I mean by don't sweat the big stuff? What do I mean by that? Well, when we talk about the will of God, theologians and Bible scholars, and yes, I'm going to geek out for just a minute, they use three different ways to help us understand the will of God. And here they are. Number one is God's will of decree. That's just a 25-cent word that means whatever is. God's will of decree is the way things are, whether good, whether bad, whether ugly, whether desirable or undesirable. It's just the way that things are. That's God's will of decree. We have no say-so in that. We give no input in that. We don't participate in that, and really it's a mystery to us until after the fact, and it happens. And we've talked about some of that in Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11. I don't, want to, I don't want to rehash all of that. It's just to say that that is another word would be God's sovereign decree, right? From the foundation of the world, everything that would happen, Psalm 139 says, all of our days God has planned for us. The day of our birth, the day of our death, every conversation we have, that, that means he's sovereign over angels, over demons, over things seen, over things unseen, over something as, as small and tiny as the... The course that a flea hops onto your dog and bites him, uh, or a tsunami that happens, right? Or something earth-shattering that happens. That is God's will of decree. It's the way that things are. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. He has done whatever he please, right? Job 42 says, uh, now I, I, I know that you're sovereign basically, and whatever you have decreed will come to pass. And I put my hand over my mouth, Job says. There's lots of other passages. Daniel chapter 4 talks about nobody can say to God, what are you doing? Or stay his hand. That's the will of decree, the way that things are. 
You may, you may describe it as God's providence. He is orchestrating and, and, and directing history. And sometimes it's surprising to us. Sometimes it grieves us. But God's will of decree is the way that things are. And, and Moses was probably thinking about this particular will of God when he said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he said this. He said, the secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things, what's that mean? That means the things we can't know until after they happen. It's the hidden things. They belong to God. And you know what? Sometimes we are really obsessive to know what those things are. And God says, that's not for you to know. Really, it's none of our business until after it happens, right? People spend a lot of money and do some dark, crazy, mystic things to try and figure that out. And talk to demons who are lying to them. Crazy things happen. That's the will of decree. There's another will, and it's the will of desire. There's the will of decree... There's the will of desire, and this is the knowable will of God. This, this is the things that God has revealed to us, the things in His Word. You could say the commandments. God doesn't want us to lie. That's His will for us to be honest. God wants us to be holy. He wants us to, to stay pure. He wants us to obey Him. He wants us to be kind. He wants us to be forgiving. He doesn't want us to steal or kill. That's, that's God's will of desire. And He is not hiding that. He's not playing, you know, playing, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer. That's not mysterious at all. That's very clearly set forth in God's Word. And then there's the third kind of will, and it's the will of direction. And usually when people talk about, I really want to know God's will for my life, they're talking about the third one, and they obsess over that. And here's, here's what I submit to you happens so often. People are so obsessive and neurotic about the first kind of will the one that's hidden and the one that's mysterious and the one that's kind of none of our business until it happens, they're obsessive over that one and then they're obsessive over the last one. I don't want to miss it. I want to hit the bullseye. I want to marry the right person. I want to go to the right school. And I know there's only, there's only one path I can take and I'm so paranoid that I'm going to miss it. They're so obsessive over those two that they totally neglect the one in the middle, which is the one God gives to us as a gift. And helps us understand and empowers us and illuminates our minds to get it. So when I say don't sweat the big stuff, here's what I mean by that. And man, I know I've prayed that this, that this wouldn't be confusing to anybody uh, and that you would track with me what I'm saying. And I guess I can say it this way. Let's say that it's time for you to move your family to a new location. And you, you know, you, you're convinced that it's time to move, but you don't know where exactly God wants you to move. You don't know what house to buy. You don't know what neighborhood. You've done a fair amount of research. You know what your budget is. But man, you're moving to a big city and you are, you, you have the paralysis of analysis, right? You're not sure. Do I want a cul-de-sac? Do I want a corner lot? Do I want a half acre backyard? Do I want to be in this neighborhood where there's a, a you know, a, a, a three-coated school, whatever? And we obsess over that. I don't think that's the right thing to obsess over. Yes, you should pray about it. Yes, you should have good friends that you can bounce ideas off of. Yes, you should look at the budget and the spreadsheet and all of that. But I will submit to you, God is much more concerned with what you do in that neighborhood when you get there. Does that make sense? How do you treat your neighbors? How do you view that community? What causes are you finding to invest yourself in there? And I'll say this, and this is probably the one that's, that's uh, easiest to be misunderstood because God has made it really clear to us when we are dating somebody and we're moving toward marriage, man, there's so many factors in that, right? Marry only in the Lord. Don't be unequally yoked. I'm assuming all of that when I say this. Let's just say there's, you, you have some, some options maybe, and, and you've got to be even, even careful with that. I don't want to overqualify everything. But let's just say there's, there's a godly potential spouse, maybe three or four of them, and you're stressing, man, I don't, want, <laughs> I don't want to miss God's will for my life. I don't want to marry the wrong person. I don't want to get, I don't want to get this wrong. And there's no scandal, nothing glaring. Any of them would be, there'd be nothing wrong with any of them, you know? What is God most concerned with? When you marry somebody, and I love what John Piper says, he says, People say, how do I know if I marry the right person? He says, look on your marriage license. And the person's name who's on there, if that's the one you're married to, you marry the right person. Now, what does God really care about? How you treat that person. 
You following me? Are you loving that person as Christ loved the church? Are you caring for them? Are you laying your life down for them? Is your marriage painting a picture of what the gospel, you know, I preached a, a wedding uh, last Sunday, and I appreciate Bill preaching for me. I was able to be here for a little while, and then I had the jet. Uh, and I said this, we preach the gospel from pulpits, but your marriage is a living demonstration of the gospel all the time, because it's a mystery of how Christ relates to his bride. That's the mystery Paul talks about, right? The mystery is this, one plus one equals one. That's the mystery. You're one flesh. You're one. The two become one. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall join himself to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that is a powerful, hopefully a beautiful picture, right? We're all painting on some canvas with our marriage. We're telling the world something about Jesus. It's either a lie or it's distorted and perverted and twisted, or it's a beautiful demonstration of how Jesus came, rescued his bride, and unites to her. So God cares much more about how you treat your spouse when you commit and you take vows in the presence of God and those assembled witnesses, he cares much more when you go to college, when you pick the college that you go to. And maybe you have an idea where your gifts and your talents lie, and you should definitely talk to your parents about that. Pray about it. Bounce those things off, good Christian friends, and hopefully you're in community. But let's just say you commit. God cares much more about how serious and responsible you are when you're sitting in classes that you're not cheating, right? You're not getting AI to write your research paper. I only got a couple of laughs off that. You wait. You wait and you see. <laughs> That's already here, my friends. It is. Or that you're not surfing ESPN when the lecture is going on. Or that you submit your homework on time. Or that you're applying yourself. Those are the, the little bitty minuscule things that we feel bored with. We're like, no, no, I just, I'm more consumed with how do I know? How can I know that I'm going to the right college? That's kind of a loaded question. Can you ever know? You pray about it. You, you, you're in community. You bounce those ideas off trustworthy people that have your best intention at heart. And then you commit. You make the decision and you trust God. So that's what I mean when I say don't sweat the big stuff. Right? That's not the thing that in the, grand, in the grand scheme of your life, God is most concerned with. He cares about it, and thank God for his sovereign providence. That he direct, we have to trust his guidance. I pray all the time, Lord, prevent me from doing something stupid. I trust you. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough intuition to figure out what your secret hidden will is, and nor will I be held accountable for that. Did you know that? If you want to be concerned about things, be concerned about the things for which you will be held accountable. Nobody's going to stand before God on Judgment Day and God's going to say, you moved into the wrong neighborhood. How could you do that? You're not going to say that. <laughs> you went to the wrong college. You blew it. <laughs> you weren't supposed to plant a church here in Deltona. You were supposed to plant one in Austin. Did you know I was going to do that? Crazy story, another sermon for another time. I was. I was going to plant a church in Austin, Texas because we have family and friends who live there. And you know what? I prayed about it. I talked to God about it, talked to my wife about it, and in a series of near miraculous providence, God steered me here. And here I am. You know what? God, God's not concerned where I plant a church. And listen, I want to say this is going to sound controversial. As long as you're in a sound, New Testament, biblical, faithful, gospel preaching church, God doesn't care what church you go to either. He's concerned with when you're there. When you're there, are you using your gifts to serve Him? Are you supporting the ministry of that church? It's really quiet in here sometimes. Is it, I hope I'm not confused. Is, is that making sense? If there's a faithful church here, there's a faithful church here, they're all close to your neighborhood, man, that's not something to stress on. Commit. God wants you to commit. He wants you to be faithful and loyal to him and share the responsibilities and use the gifts and the talents and the treasures that he's given you. So that's the first point, and I know we're not in Romans yet. We're going to be. Don't sweat the big stuff. What's the second point? Renew, 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 okay? But, you know, before I get to that, I wanted to say this. There's, there's been one good book that was super helpful to read. Kevin DeYoung, he wrote a book, and you really don't have to read it. I'll read the title, and it will tell you everything, okay? <laughs> it's called Just Do Something, a, libera a liberating approach to finding God's will or how to make a decision without dreams, vision, Visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, 
liver shivers and riding in the sky. And he wasn't trying to be funny. He's trying to correct a, a, a concerning problem that he saw that people were obsessing over things that were secret and that were hidden. They were skipping over the middle will of God and going to the first and to the last. So, what does the Apostle Paul say here? Let's read this again together. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means, we've said this before, a killing sacrifice. It, it, the Apostle Paul had every intention of making that sound provocative. Usually a sacrifice stays dead. But he says, you're supposed to be a living sacrifice. What does that mean? It means this. It means you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. The first 11 chapters of Romans has shown you how much God loves you, how radically committed he was and is to your rescue. And by the mercies of God, therefore, the reasonable, spiritual, worshipful thing to, for you to do is to present yourself to God. He uses that word bodies because that represents all of you, the most personal parts of you. Nothing's, nothing's uh, off hands for God, right? So you offer yourself, you present yourself as a living sacrifice, a living killing. You're presenting yourself over and over every day and saying, Lord, I'm yours. Like John Calvin's uh, logo, remember? I present my heart to you promptly and sincerely. That was his logo. He had like a, or an emblem or a coat of arms. He had an open hand with a heart in it saying, Lord, I'm yours. So present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewal of your mind. That by, and here we go, here's the sermon. Why do, we, why do we not be conformed to this world? Why do we resist that? Why do we resist the thousands, maybe even gazillions, millions of ways that every single day when we put our feet off of our bed onto the floor, this world is trying to conform us? Why do we resist that? And why instead do we renew our minds and allow ourselves to be transformed from the inside out? Why do we do that? Paul says, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. He's talking about the middle will of God, but he's also just introducing us to the third. He's saying, don't stress about that. Be concerned with this, and this will take care of itself. Because we, we, we get concerned and we, we get neurotic about the wrong thing. I mean, we're not supposed to be neurotic about anything. But we give our time and our attention to the wrong thing. God says, stop here in the middle. Forget about the secret things. You'll never know those until they, until they happen. Instead, feast your, your mind and your heart. Park right here. Open yourself up to God's word and be renewed. Let your mind be renewed day after day after day. And, and we said last time, we nerded out a little bit and said that in Greek there's a, a particular tense that's called passive tense. Paul is telling you to let something happen to you. You're responsible for that thing to happen, but it's something that passively happens. It's the Spirit of God using the revealed Word of God and renewing your mind, changing you, transforming you into something beautiful. It's the word metamorpho. We get the word metamorphosis. It's what happens to a caterpillar. They spin this cocoon. They essentially die in there. The, the genetic molecular structure of their body turns into soup. But lo and behold, man, when that cocoon breaks open, I think 12 days later, something beautiful and transformed comes out. I don't know if Paul knew what a butterfly was, but that's the same word that we get for we use in, in Greek for metamorphosis. He's saying if you renew your mind, if whatever you behold, you become. That's what he's saying here. You become what you behold, and it happens to you. So instead of, instead of exposing yourself to the world's way of thinking and believing and responding, the world's way of appraisal, the world saying this is good, this is good, this is weakness, this is stupid, this is dumb, this is immoral, this is unethical. He said, don't allow the, the world to, to hand you an appraisal system. Instead, you get it from God. You let God show you what's good, what's true, what's beautiful, what's right, what's lovely, what's honorable, what's excellent, what's praiseworthy. He said, God has shown you those things. You have to park yourself. You have to plant yourself. You have to open yourself up and let these truths mold you and shape you and form you. And it happens 
over time, as, as you know, the Bible says, we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, it's almost imperceptible. I think it was J.C. Ryle, he said this once. He said, Christians are supposed to grow, not hastily like a mushroom, and think of that, something that happens so quick, it's like mildew and moldy and kind of gross and mushy. Sorry if you're a mushroom lover, all right? He says, instead, it's like an oak, oak sapling. Have you ever planted a tree? Have you, uh, have you ever just watched a tree that was planted and it was a young sapling? I mean, if you stand in front of that tree and stare at it, even some of those time-lapse videos, they don't have enough data storage to capture, right? Slowly, imperceptibly, over time, something wonderful happens. The roots go down deep and they strengthen and they thicken and the trunk rises up and it thickens. And before what a storm or a heavy rain would kill and destroy, man, it can handle anything. I think Psalm 1, honestly, is, is like an Old Testament commentary on what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying, renew your mind. And by the way, that is also not only, not only is that verb in that particular tense, but it's, but it's an ongoing. It's, it's a, when he says, the renewal of your mind and be transformed, that is a present active. That means it's not a one and done, okay? This is not something you do once and, it, and it's good enough. I would even argue it's not enough to do it once a week. This is something that you are exposing yourself to over and over. Whatever habits you are putting in place, whatever rhythms for your life you're putting in place, a major part of it should be renewal, daily, remo- daily renewal and transformation. So Psalm 1 says this. You think about it for a minute. I'm getting there. What does Psalm 1 say? Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who stands not in the way of sinners, and sits not in the seat of scoffers. But rather, their delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And on his Lord they meditate day and night. So it's basically saying, don't be conformed by this. And it's, it's, I see graduality there. At first you're, at first you're walking, and then you're, you're standing, you're intrigued, and then you're sitting. You've been conformed. You've been shaped. It says, instead, instead, delight yourself in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. And what will you be like? You'll be like a tree. You'll be planted deep. You'll be strong. You'll be deep. You'll be able to withstand the pressures and the stressors and the floods and the storms and the darkness and the sin all the brokenness that we encounter in this life, you'll be okay because you've been transformed. You have a renewed mind. You see the truth. You know the truth. See, your heart follows your habits. Did you know that? It's not the, the, the major decisions. What, how many people, I forgot where I read, 10 major decisions in your life, the world would argue that, that, that shape you and make you into the person that you are. I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I could not disagree with that more. Do you know the decisions that shape you and make you into the person that you are? They're the millions of tiny little decisions every single day that you and I make and that we make poorly or we make, or we make them well. That's what makes you into the man or the woman that you're becoming. That's why Psalm 1 says, instead, delight yourself in the Lord and meditate on it once a week. No, day and night. Expose yourself to the, the heart-transforming, mind-renewing power of God's Word. That's the argument that he makes here. Kevin DeYoung says this. He makes this argument. He says, trusting in God's will of decree is good. Following his will of desire is obedient. Just sitting around waiting for God's will of direction is a mess. Instead, renew your mind. Don't sweat the big stuff. That's what he's talking about. And then we'll go on to well, I wanted, wanted to give you this quote. This is a good one by R.C. Sproul. Man, I love R.C. Sproul. He's a good teacher, isn't he? Here's what he said. He said, when people ask me, what's the will of God for my life? I reply, are you asking me if I should be a lawyer or a baker or whether you should marry Jane or Virginia? I'll tell you simply what the Bible says about it. This is the will of God, your sanctification. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what our job is or whom we marry or what city we live in, if we are not growing in sanctification, seeking God's will about such things is worthless. Isn't that powerful? In my reading recently, I was studying 1 Samuel 28. And to give you some context, that is when 
King Saul is just at the apex of his hopelessness. He's at the very end of his life. He has rejected God's revealed will, God's will of desire, over and over and over. The prophet that anointed him as king, Samuel, is dead. All the priests that could help him ascertain God's will, he killed them. Remember, 80 priests in the city of Nob. Saul felt threatened by them, and he was angry, and he wanted to seek revenge because they helped David, so he slaughtered all of them. So there's no more priest. The prophet is dead. And in 1 Samuel chapter 28, it says, All the armies of the Philistines are gathered together against Saul and the armies of Israel. And Saul <clears throat> sees all these armies, and his heart, the Bible says, his heart trembled. He was frightened. He was scared to death. And also, I think, gnawing away at him is, is that somewhere over there is King David, the man who's killed his tens of thousands, and he's scared to death. That'd be like the Navy SEAL who, who should probably kill you and may want to. He's out there, and he's coming for you, buddy. And it says that Saul's heart trembled. And do you remember what Saul did at this point in his life? The priest weren't there. The prophet wasn't there. He's trying to consult God to see what to do. Lord, what do you want me to do, God? Do I attack them? Do I run? Do I go hide in Israel? What do you want me to do? And guess what God said? Nothing. God didn't tell him a thing. No matter what he did, God didn't answer him. No dream, no vision, the Urim and the Thummim casting lots, nada. He didn't get rip from God. And do you know why? Because every single thing that God had ever told Saul, he either ignored it, or he slighted it, or he belittled it, or he stiff-armed the prophet, or he just did his own thing. You can read the whole life of Saul, he did that. And now there's this major decision that's confronting Saul when he most thinks he needs to hear from God, and God's not saying a word. And you remember what Saul did? He got really desperate. You know what he did? He went and he consulted a medium. The witch of Endor. This has always been a creepy... I mean, the Bible's not boring, guys. It's just not. I'm sorry. It is not. People say, oh, the Bible's so boring. I'm like, man, are we reading the same thing? So he goes at night. He dresses up in somebody so she won't recognize that he's the king of Israel because he has, you know, expelled and, and banished all the mediums. He was trying to appear noble and pious. But he goes and he finds one. His, his people find one. And he dresses up in disguise and he tells her, hey, I want you to conjure up for me somebody. And she says, who? And he says, conjure up the prophet Samuel. You remember the story? And she does her thing. And it's, it's interesting. This is another sermon for another day. She conjures up a person who, an apparition, a spirit that looks like Samuel. And she cries out. Ha! In other words, this is not normally what happens when she does what she does which makes me think it's all the shenanigans and snake oil and all that. Uh, she cries out, and he's like, what do you see? And she says, I see something like a god coming up out of the earth. Gives you shivers and chicken skin, doesn't it? Thinking about it. And he says, what's he look like? She says, he's old, he's got a mantle. He goes, it's him, it's Samuel. And he says, tell, tell him I need to talk to him. You remember this? And do so, and you remember what Samuel does? He rebukes him. He says, why have you disturbed my sleep? Why are you conjuring me up? And he goes, I, I don't know what to do. God won't talk to me. The armies of Israel are right against me. And Samuel basically says, hey, Saul, God doesn't have anything new to say to you. You've rejected everything that he's ever told you. And you know what? It's too late now. It's too late. God's, he's not unraveling some mystery for you. Here's the mystery. Tomorrow, you're going to be here with me. And your sons are going to be here with me. How's that? Now, I got to go. Peace out. That's what he says. And to me... I don't think you're in danger of conjuring up a, a witch or, I mean, I hope you're not, I hope. <laughs> but to me, the parable there is when you perpetually and consistently ignore what God has clearly told you, don't expect some, you know, earth-shattering new revelation to come. It's not. I mean, we don't do that. If I, if I told my son, hey, take out the garbage, watch your little brother, uh, you, you know, make dinner, <laughs> um, and he says, no. Over and over, I'm not going to say, okay, well, will you do this instead? No, I'm not going to deal with it. So that's just a kind of a creepy reminder, I guess, from the Old Testament. When we consistently ignore over and over what God has already revealed, um, he's not going to give us any new revelation. Chastening, in Saul's case, punishment. I don't think we're going to see Saul in heaven. Everything that he ever did was contrary to what God's revealed will was for his life. No, God's, God's not most concerned about those 
10 big life-shaping decisions the world tells you to stress over, those are important, and I believe God gives us guidance and care, and there's a process. We should certainly pray, and we should seek wisdom of those things, and the Bible, God's desired will, tells us how to go about those things. God cares more about our character. He cares more about the, the thousands of everyday decisions we make every single day that are molding us and shaping us into somebody's image, either the image of Christ or the image of something worldly. Does that make sense? Psalm 51 says this, Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God cares more about that, your heart, your mind, renewing every day, exposing yourself to, to biblical truth, letting that govern your life, saturating your mind and heart with that. So, um, that's why in Psalm 16:8, this is, I don't have a tattoo, but you know what? If I ever get one, I'm pretty sure it's going to be this one. It's Psalm 16:8, and it says this, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, in biblical times, you would put at your right hand the most important thing. If you were a king, your advisor would be right here, right? And here's what, here's what King David, who wrote that, is saying. He's like, my lens through which I view the world and make all of my decisions, I've set the Lord always before me. He's the lens. He's the filter. He's the perspective that I, that I get on everything else in life. And because he's right here, I'm not going to be shaken. I'm not going to be paranoid. I'm not going to be neurotic. I'm not going to be fearful. I'm not going to be afraid or anxious or angry or lustful or greedy or panicky. I'm not going to be those things. I'm not going to be, nothing's going to shake me. Nothing's going to rattle me. God is, is setting the perspective for my life and I'm going to trust him. That's the same thing that the Apostle Paul's saying, just in a different way. He's saying, renew your mind. Don't be conformed to the image of this world. Don't, don't be fashioned into its pattern and way of thinking. Instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And he says, so that. And here's the best part. This is the last point. See, we're going to finish this. You guys are listening. Who's Who said that? <laughs> Patty Parks. She knows me. Um, this is the best part. This is the last point. It is this. Live the good life. Instead of you stressing over and being neurotic and paranoid and overly fixated on, am I going to miss it? Here's the most beautiful thing about this. When Paul says in this passage, when he says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is not just using those three words to tell you what you already know. We already know that God's will is good, it's perfect, and it's acceptable, right? We already know that. What Paul is telling you is that as you renew your mind day by day, you're going to experientially, by practice, learn that the life that you're pursuing because of these things, it's good. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's acceptable. It's a good life. That's what he's saying. If your mind is being shaped by God's word, you know what that means, friends? It means that you are loving the things that God loves. You are caring about the things that God cares about, not the things the world cares about, the things that God cares about. You're setting the Lord before you, and so guess what? Your desires and His desires are going to mysteriously mesh together, for you don't have to stress over what is God's directive will. You know that already. He's shaping you and molding you to where you're headed in that direction. You're not going the opposite direction. You're going in the right direction. Therefore, you can enjoy this beautiful life, right? Uh, one of my mentors when I went to seminary was the president, and he was my pastor in California, John MacArthur. And he wrote a book a long time ago. It's probably one of his most popular books, and it's called Found, God's Will. That's the name of the book. It's a great little book, and he has such a helpful outline in that book. I want to read it to you, just in case you don't hear anything else I say today. This is a, this is a good takeaway. Here's what he says in that book. Number one, he says, God's will is not lost, you know, and he's not playing hide and seek. And you don't have to, where does, God want me to, where does God want me to move and live? Oh, I slipped on a banana peel and I landed on a map of Argentina. That's a sign. Maybe it's not. Maybe you just slipped on a banana peel and landed on a map of Argentina, right? <laughs> anyway, here's what he says. He says, what is God's will? And then he gives this little outline and it's all S's, just like a John MacArthur sermon, right? 
He says, first, it's God's will for you to be saved. To be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, God is not willing that any should perish, but, but that all should come to repentance, right? Secondly, his desire is that you be spirit-filled. Ephesians 5, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. It's God's will for you to be filled and controlled by the Spirit of God. Third, it's God's will for you to be sanctified. Check this out, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So God wants you to be saved. God wants you to be spirit-filled. He wants you to be sanctified. He also wants you to be submissive to the authorities in your life, whoever that is. Whether it's a, whether it's a parent, uh, here's a, a verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. So he wants you to be saved. He wants you to be spirit-filled. He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be submissive. He wants you to be willing to suffer. Willing to suffer? Check this out. First Peter 3, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Sometimes it's God's will for us to suffer. Sometimes being in the center of God's will will bring great pain to your life. Look at Jesus. He delighted to do God's will, and it took him straight to the cross. But he said at the end, not my will, but what? Your will. Your will be done. And then one of the last things is, it's God's will for you to be saying thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So here's the last point that was always helpful to me that John would make. God's will is for you to be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, willing to suffer, saying thanks. And then the last point is, if all of those things are happening in your life, do you know what God's will is for you? It's whatever you want. Now, that sounds dangerous, doesn't it? But friends, think about this. There's no scandal in your life. You're submitting your, your, your mind and your heart to God's word to be renewed. You're being submissive. You're being filled with God's spirit. You're making good choices. Your life is headed in a safe, a good, a God-honoring, Christ-exalting direction. So here's the verse, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's why the last point in this is live the good life. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern. And what that means is it's one word. It's one word. It's, it's, a, it's a fun Greek word to say. It, it is uh, dokimos, dokimos, and it means to prove the worth of something by testing it, to prove the worth of something by testing That means experientially you are proving, you're doing something, you're saying, hey, this is good, this is beautiful, this is the right thing to do. Paul is saying if you are renewing your mind, you're being transformed, this is what's going to happen. You're going to find out experientially how beautiful God's will is, how good it is. It's not, sometimes it's hard, sure it is. But it's good. The Bible says that God's commandment is exceedingly broad. Listen, God is not holding out on you. He is not seeking to be a cosmic killjoy or to crimp your freedom or to hurt you. Jackie Hill Perry wrote a book called The Holiness of God, or I think that's the name of it, something about God's holiness. And she says, because God is holy, God doesn't sin. And because God doesn't sin, God can't sin against you. And because God can't sin against you, guess what? He's not going to hurt you, right? You can trust God. That's what that means. So this is the point that the Apostle Paul is making. Submit your mind and your heart to the Word of God and the desired, revealed will of God, and you're, gonna, you're going to prove out by testing the excellent quality of God's will. I mean, think about this. Th think about Psalm 19. Let me read this to you. This is kind of a summary. This is a summary of, of God's Word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then he goes on down here and he says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And then he says, 
Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Does that sound like, the, like a bummer of a life to you? A heart that rejoices? Something that's more precious than gold? That's sweeter than honey? The foolish person being made wise? The presumptuous person being held back from committing great error and doing great harm? That's the good life. This is the green pastures and the still waters that the Bible tells us God wants us to enjoy. God is not holding out on us. He is giving us the good, the beautiful, the true, the right. So as I want to be a good shepherd of this church, I want to be a good pastor to you. When you think about God's will, I hope you remember something of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. I hope that you don't get neurotic, and I hope that you don't get anxious and apprehensive. I hope you know that as you are making those decisions every single day that are going to shape you and mold you into the person that you're becoming, that you can trust God. That, that, that you're presenting yourself before the Lord. And you're saying, Lord, fill me with your word. Fill me with truth. Renew my mind. Transform my heart. Guard me. Help me to make decisions that are going to honor you. Help me make decisions that are going to be pleasing to you. Help me make decisions that are going to further your mission in the world and to give myself to those things that are beautiful and that are make for peace. In fact, if you look, if you look at the rest of, of Romans chapter 12, it's just really interesting to me. You, I mean, this, this is the book, this is the letter that Paul wrote to a church, and he said, hey, I'm going to lay out pretty much a systematic theology of the, of the message of Christianity. And nowhere in this letter does he tell you how to make uh, the 10 big decisions that the world say, says is going to shape your life. Do you know what he, he focuses on in the rest of chapter 12? Check this out. This is what he says. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, make sure you pick the right college. That's not what he says. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Wherever you are at, God wants you to be humble. That's God's desired will for you. Does that make sense? Whoever you marry, God wants you to serve that person and to love that person. Whatever neighborhood you live in, God wants you to be a faithful, non-anxious, unignorable presence to show people what a transformed life that's been captivated by the beauty of Christ looks like. He doesn't care about that other stuff in the grand scheme of things. He will guide you. Ask him for help. James says, ask for wisdom and he'll give it to you without taking it back. No backsies. God will give you the wisdom that you need. But what he's concerned about is that you not be a stingy, greedy, perverted, lustful, angry, anxious person in the world. That's what matters the most to God. And when we're presenting ourselves to the Lord and getting our minds renewed... We're going, to, we're going to become something beautiful and something powerful and, and something that's going to make the world sit up and take notice. That's what, that's what I wanted the sermon to be today. And, you know, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, as we behold the Lord, we are transformed. We are transformed into His image from one level of glory to the next. So I would say to you as a church, if the will of God is something that, that strikes fear into your heart, you know the, the best thing you could do is you can sit at the feet of Christ, open up his word, stare at the beauty and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ until what he did for you, until what he did for you just washes over your mind and heart and, and, and shapes your perspective on life. That's the greatest thing you can do. I promise you. I promise you, if you are doing those things, it's going to be imperceptible, maybe to you, the people around you will notice. You're going to head in a God-honoring direction in life, and you're not going to make foolish decisions. No matter where you live, no matter, you know, which godly person that you marry, I'll say it that way, no matter which faithful church you join and commit yourself to, no matter which affordable vehicle that you purchase, yes, those things matter, and there's something to be said for getting guidance on those, but God cares about your heart. That's what He cares about most. And that's what Paul cares about. And that's why the will of God is couched in the, kind of this language about transformation and renewal. So I wanted to preach that message to you to help you think about uh, God's desire will and not stress so much over his will of decree and his will of direction. I hope that encourages you. And I know this may leave some of you with questions. That's okay. That's what the community of Christ is for. We can bounce these things off of one another, okay? Really quiet in here today. Maybe it's because we're all thinking more deeply about this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, for the power of your word, the clarity of your word, the beauty of beholding Jesus Christ in all of his glory. 
who he is, what he has done on our behalf. We don't deserve it, Lord. You came and you died for your enemies. You, you shed your precious blood for us. Your body was broken for us. You suffered the wrath of God for us. Lord, you want us to meditate on that. You want us to remember the new identity that you have given us. You want us to, to bask in your love. You want us to know the depth and the height and the breadth and the width and to know the love of Christ that surpasses human understanding. You want us to swim in those waters, Lord. You want us to be consumed with that, not fear of the unknown, not apprehension over making uh, a decision. You're not even going to hold us accountable for knowing the right way. So I pray that you would usher peace into the hearts of your people today at Grace Life. I pray that nothing that I've said is misleading or confusing or unbiblical, Lord. I thank you that you do protect us. We, we pray when we're thinking clearly that you would protect us from doing something foolish, from making an impulsive and a hasty decision. Help us to use the means of grace that you've given us, Lord. We have a, a Bible. We have your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to teach us and to illuminate us, Lord. We have the body of Christ. We have good, solid Christian friends we can be honest with and ask them for feedback. And we're so secure and anchored in the hope of the gospel, we can be honest with one another and say, listen, friend, I, I see you. maybe you're not thinking clearly about this. You've given us leaders that love your word and want to shepherd community groups, facilitators, beautiful homes to gather in, D groups to, 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 to fight the flesh in and memorize scripture together, hold one another accountable. I pray all those things help us to live the kind of life that honors you, Lord. And I pray if anybody is here, Lord, and they, they want this beautiful life, they, they want to delight to do the will of God, as, as Psalm 40 talks about, but Lord, they see it more of a burden. They don't see God's will as beautiful. They don't see it as, as desirable. They see it as hard and, and burdensome. I pray, Lord, you would do what Colossians talks about. You, you would circumcise their heart. You would change their heart so that duty and delight are not two different things. They're the same thing. Your, your will, your commandments would be unburdensome. They would be the, the thrill and the delight of, of, of their hearts. They would give their life to Jesus. They would repent of their sins, ask you to come into their life, forgive them, and begin to change them, Lord, from the inside out. And they would become the image of Jesus. I pray that today in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Amen.